0: Thanks, Heather, and good evening, everyone. Um, A word of prayer as we approach this short but potent uh, passage of Scripture. As the Father sent me, I send you, said Jesus, simply, provocatively, frighteningly, perhaps, for some of us. But Lord Jesus, we believe that along with the command, along with the commission, You will give us the wherewithal, not least the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may do our part in serving and proclaiming your good news in this needy world. Grant us that help. Grant us that power. Grant us that clarity of thought this evening, we pray. Amen. Well, it seems like everyone's on a mission. ...these days, wouldn't you agree? Um, we have um, a woman who lives just down the road from us... ...who's on a mission to rid the, uh, uh, the side of the road... ...just where she lives... ...from all of the lorries and their drivers... ...who park just outside her house... ...churning up uh, the grass, uh, blocking her view and uh, generally making a nuisance of themselves and so she's been on a mission to get rid of them for some time now she has raised uh, petitions Uh, she has I think written to the council she's got some uh, wooden posts erected outside her house and I think she's got actually the delivery times of of uh, of some of those lorries changed as well and it seems to have worked, because they're not parking outside the house at all anymore, they're parking outside ours. <laughs> no, it's not true. <laughs> um, but I wonder if you're on some kind of mission. A lot of people are. Some people are on a mission to save the whale, or save the white rhino. Some people are on a mission to um, save the Antarctic. Some people are on a mission to get rid of slugs in their back gardens, I don't know. And some people simply want to rid the, want to rid the world of poverty, war, and injustice not a bad aim. What about the Christian church? Is the Christian church on a mission? Well, we were on a mission in the mid-80s when the late Billy Graham was in this country, I think based in Sheffield, and we had Mission England. Some of us remember that. And then the 1990s was designated um, a decade of evangelism, so I guess we were on a mission then. But what about the church Now, is the church today on a mission? Well, our passage says yes. Jesus says to his followers, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. There's a mission. From the risen Lord Jesus, these are words spoken, on the evening of the day of his resurrection, when he... uh, Uh, despite the locked doors of the room where his disciples uh, had met. Jesus appeared in the middle of the room and uh, spoke several things to them, including giving them this mission to fulfill. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So I'd like that to be the focus of our um, uh, thoughts uh, for the next uh, few minutes. However, there's a big, burly bouncer there who's not going to let us into this text unless we can answer three questions. Because the text, short as it is, it's got words of not exactly one syllable, but not many syllables, short as it is, has got um, three um, sticky or knotty problems in it that we're going to have to deal with before we can make some headway in applying it to ourselves in this church and in this day and age. So there's our passage, John 20, verses 19 to 23. I would be so pleased if you could have it open in front of you, page uh, 1089 in the church Bibles. I want to point out to you what these three problems are that we need to try to sort out. These are problems over which Scholars have had a field day. They have spilt uh, oceans of ink and covered acres of paper trying to work out exactly what these three things mean that we read of. Firstly, the question of who. When we read in verse 21 that the disciples were together, exactly who, what group of people is being referred to? Now, we might assume that John is referring to the 12 disciples, except that Judas wouldn't have been there, and we know that Thomas wouldn't be there until a week later. So the 12 minus uh, minus 10. But John has a habit of referring to the 12 as the 12. And quite often, when he wants to refer to a larger number of followers of Jesus, he refers to them as disciples. Now, we need to know, I think... (laughs) what group of people John means, because if John only means the 12 or the 12 minus 2, then we might argue that that commission, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, only applies to them and not to us. So we need to know whether it includes others as well. Otherwise, we'd be cheating. And it's it's never a good idea... (laughs) be assuming that always when jesus says something to somebody it applies directly to you and to me otherwise if that were the case you would need to go home this evening or at least tomorrow (laughs) uh, go home this evening and then tomorrow sell everything you have and give all the proceeds to the poor because that's what jesus said to somebody (laughs) so you can't always simply transfer everything that jesus says to one person and say oh that must apply to me too not always the case. We're going to be careful. The second knotty problem is this: When is Jesus referring to when he breathed on them? I just like you to um, uh, watch me. <sighs> it could be translated. There's nothing about in the text originally about he breathed on them. It, it, the sense is he blowed. <laughs> He blew, (laughs) excuse me, bad English. He blew, all right? So just carry that thought in your mind. But the question at the moment is, when is he referring to? When he he blew and said, receive the Holy Spirit, many scholars say, oh, that's John's version of Pentecost. That's John's version of what happened in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came down with power, there was a mighty wind, a violent wind blowing, or that that kind of sound, and tongues looking like fire. They all spoke with tongues, and the apostles, especially Peter, were given boldness in proclaiming the gospel. Now, if this is John's Pentecost, we've got a problem, because John records nothing of that. And so we've got to make up our minds, who do we believe? A very quiet, private Pentecost, which has no observable immediate effects on the disciples? Or do we believe Luke's Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which was an amazing uh, experience? That's the next question. When is, Jesus, is he saying, receive the Holy Spirit with power now, or is, he, is it some other time? And then the third knotty question is this, what? What did Jesus mean when he said, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I mean, have you ever done that? Wandered around and sort of said, no, you've done something wrong, I forgive you, but um, you've also done something wrong, I'm not going to forgive you. You don't do that, do you? Yet that appears to be what Jesus is saying. Now, some sections of the church have interpreted, used this almost as a proof text for a certain kind of confession of sins, confession of sins to a priest, whereby the priest has a special authority under Christ to forgive sins, so-called auricular confession, um, a belief that's held by our Roman Catholic friends and some others. Does it mean that? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? As I say, scholars have um, had a a great field day with all three of those questions. And who am I, who are we to decide uh, what the right answers might be? To clear our way through these difficulties. But, you know, I think we can cheat. Shall we cheat? We can look the the answer up in the back of the book. Not in the back of John's Gospel, that wouldn't help a lot. Not in the back of the Bible, because the end of Revelation won't help us. We can get the answers, I firmly believe, at the, uh, in the back of Luke's gospel, because Luke tells, has his own account of the same event. It's clearly told; it's clearly the same event, but told from a different perspective, where well, Luke, Luke fills in the gaps for us. It's amazing. So let's just have a quick look. Luke tells us. Then it wasn't just the 12, minus Judas and Thomas. In there, in that room, were also those two who had been on the road to Emmaus. You know that story? Wonderful story in Luke 24. When they are met by the risen Jesus. Don't recognize that first. And then he makes himself known to them as he breaks bread with them. Those two went to the disciples, went back to Jerusalem and told the disciples they were in the room at the same time. And Luke also tells us there were others, those with him. So we know it isn't just what we might call the apostles. It's others, some of whom are completely unnamed. So therefore, we do have permission, even though that command, as the Father sent me, so I send you, was primarily to the apostles. That's what the word apostle means, one who is sent. There is an important, if secondary sense, in which it applies to all followers of Jesus Christ. That's my argument on number one. As for when, Luke also sorts this one out for us, because in Luke's version of the same event, Jesus says to the the disciples, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. There's a waiting of about six weeks until the day of Pentecost. So therefore, we know how to interpret John chapter 20 and verse 22. This is an anticipatory uh, 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 version of what is going to happen later. There'll be six weeks of teaching to be done, six weeks of praying and waiting to be done, and then the Holy Spirit will come with power. And because I I, I emphasize this idea in verse 22, Jesus blowing, because that's how the Spirit is described. That's part of how the Spirit's coming is described in Acts chapter 2. There was a violent, the wind blew violently. Now, I think there might have just been an, an intentional connection. When the wind of the Spirit blew on the day of Pentecost, the disciples can hear now Jesus and and hear Jesus blowing on them, and then they make the connection, think that Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit who has been sent by Jesus, the risen and ascended Jesus. And as for the what, again, Luke fills out the message for us and says what's going on here is that it's not so much you have the power in yourselves to forgive or not to forgive sins, But what you do have is a commission to proclaim the conditions of forgiveness. The basis on which God will forgive sins or not forgive sins. And that is proclaiming uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Christ. So with that kind of hard work, sorry if it was hard work for you, but if that hard work uh, out of the way, then I think we can proceed back to our central uh, message, uh, what I'm regarding as a central message of our passage tonight, this commission from the Lord Jesus to his followers, to his church, to his disciples, that as the Father has sent him, he is sending us. Now, of course, there are senses, important senses, in which we are not sent in, in all the ways that Jesus was sent. We aren't God incarnate, nor can we die for the sins of the world. But in terms of obedience to God and service to the gospel and service to others, well, yes, we are sent just as he is sent. So having been given that commission, how do you feel about it? How do you like being told, not suggested, it's not suggestion, not piece of advice, how do you like Jesus saying to you, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you? Do you feel perhaps alone in this task? Do you feel perhaps that in your home, in your flat, in your house, in your uh, in your class, uh, in your workplace, you feel as though you're the only person who follows Jesus Christ and you feel alone about that? By the way, I have found that um, working with groups of students, that quite often if I can make it known that I'm a follower of Jesus, some body will respond to that and sort of say, well, actually, I'm a Christian too. And then you've got some fellowship going. So do make it, even if it's difficult, like in the workplace to go out and, out and evangelize, to let it be known that you're a Christian can actually give you great encouragement in that way. But even so, you may feel alone. What does Jesus say to those who feel alone? Well, he says, you're not He gives us his presence. In verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them. That frightened group of disciples had their emotional lives turned upside down by the presence of Jesus. And in a sense, in an important sense, it's better for us who cannot see Jesus in the flesh than it was for them who could. Because even in his resurrected body, he could only be in one place at one time. Whereas now, since his ascension, he can be in any place where he's welcomed and known and recognized. At the beginning of the service, Jason read some wonderful words from the first letter of Peter celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and that passage goes on to say this and it it connects with our with the presence of Jesus being known and loved because Peter says this though you have not seen him you love him and even though you do not see him now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Live. that doesn't speak wonderfully of the presence of Jesus in the lives of his followers. I don't know what, the, what does. Or just take on board the last words of Jesus uh, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew's version of the Great Commission, when Jesus says, I am with you to the end of the age. You're never alone. Perhaps you feel afraid In in the face of this commission, afraid perhaps indeed of what people might say to you or do to you is becoming gradually more dangerous and difficult to be a Christian, even in this country, let alone in other parts of the world. But perhaps you're just afraid of what life keeps throwing at you. You're afraid of that diagnosis, you're afraid of that aging process, you're afraid of the way that relationship is going that you're afraid of the way that communication is, is breaking down. And you have fear in your heart. And that is holding you back. What does Jesus say to those who are fearful? He gives us his peace. Not once, but twice, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And you know, you know your Hebrew, don't you? You know the word, uh, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom doesn't just mean absence of conflict. That wonderful word sums up the full blessing, all of the blessings that God gives us in salvation, in redemption. That peace of mind, that sense of wholeness that the world can neither give nor take away. It is that rudder, that piece is that that rudder that steadies the ship, whatever the storm is happening. It is the taproot that reaches right down and holds the tree steady, however much the wind sways it. Do we know that piece? Because Jesus blesses them. They weren't expecting it. They didn't deserve it. They expected him at the least to wag uh, uh, wag his finger at them and sort of say, you horrible lot, you deserted me at, the, at my moment of crisis. He doesn't do any of that. He blesses them with his peace. He wants you, he wants me to experience that same peace as well. My peace, he says, I, I, I leave with you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. I give you my peace. It's a special peace, a unique peace that only he can give. So we may indeed have our fears, but the peace of Christ puts them all into perspective thirdly perhaps you feel in the light of this commission to um, uh, to be sent perhaps you feel ill equipped if you you feel as though you simply don't have the equipment the resources to deal with it you know that we're living in an increasingly skeptical world and some of the skeptics are very clever very knowledgeable and you're thinking they might ask me questions i don't know the answers to Your toolbox feels empty. What does Jesus say to those who feel ill-equipped? He gives us his evidence. Do you see in verse 20 that Jesus shows them his hands and his side? He knows they need reassurance. Perhaps there are three things in particular. They need to know it's him... And who else is going to be walking around with pierced, um, with pierced hands and with the signs of a sword having been stuck through his side? It's him. They need to know it's not only him, but he's resurrected. He's not the corpse. He's walking around and talking. And they also need to know as well, I guess, he's still carrying around the scars of his suffering we have this vision in Revelation chapter 5 and and verse 6 where the vision is of Jesus looking like a lamb who had been slain. A a lamb who looks as though it had been slain. Still, it seems, bearing the scars, bearing the imprints of those nails. Still uh, showing that he is the one who has suffered and died. Alive, yes, but having suffered. He gives the disciples this evidence. He shows them. And Jesus likes evidence. He likes giving us evidence. Some of the skeptics, the Richard Dawkins uh, crowd, um, coming at Parse these days, uh, I think most of his problems and questions have been answered, effectively by Christians over the years, but the Richard Dawkins crowd love to um, oppose faith and evidence. They say faith is belief without evidence. Now, a reasonably well-taught seven-year-old can sort that one out and give the right answer to the relationship between faith and evidence because it was done this morning. If you were here this morning, um, uh, Margaret Gray was, uh, uh, was speaking from the next passage in in John's Gospel, and she asked a question. I think the question was something like this. If we couldn't see or touch Jesus, how would we know that he was real, that he was alive? And Amelia, uh, who I think is around seven, said, without hesitation, look at the evidence. Jesus is willing for us to look at the evidence, and the evidence will not let us down. We do not distinguish between faith. Uh, You know, faith is not belief uh, without evidence. Faith is belief without sight. And scripture gives us all kinds of evidence. Look at the beginning of Luke's gospel for a man who set out to tell us what happened and who researched it carefully. He gives us his evidence. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to have confidence in the evidence. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I would like to encourage you to examine the evidence for yourself. Talk to me or to Jason or to Richard, Nigel, uh, 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 any, uh, any number of us. I'd be glad to point you in the direction of something you could look at. In addition to the Gospels themselves, to have a quick look at the evidence that Jesus lived, died, was raised from the dead and is now alive in his church. Perhaps you feel lost for words. You're okay with all of this so far, but you simply don't know what to say. What actually is the Christian message? Is it some kind of vaguely fluffy about the love of God? Well, that's a good start. But what actually are we supposed to be saying when we have the opportunity or when asked? What what answer do we have in our passage? Well, Jesus gives us his message. Verses 21 and 23. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And we clarified that little bit by looking at Luke's gospel, Luke's version of this, and said this is about the message of... Of the, uh, the, uh, the basis upon which our sins, and they are many, and they are serious, are forgiven by God. That's the center. And I would like to encourage you never to, never to depart from that center. You can never outgrow the gospel message. You can never outgrow or get beyond the message of sins forgiven. If you're still a seeker, that's the point at which you need to reach. And if you are a believer, that's the point from which everything else, uh, everything else flows. Never think, never say, oh, we know all of that stuff about Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We can just forget. You can't. It's the basis of everything. It's the basis for not only coming to Christ, but living in Christ too. Coming to Christ, all of his grace. Living for Christ, all of our gratitude for what he's done for us. So he gives us a message of forgiveness of sins. He might have said many other things, uh, but that's the center of his message for his disciples. Do you feel powerless? Think, yes, but whatever I do, whatever I say... It won't have any effect. People are just too obstinate. They just don't want to believe. I can't get through to them. He gives us his spirit. He makes them wait. He teaches them. And then about six weeks later on the day of Pentecost, wow, the spirit comes with power. And the spirit, no one else can give clarity and persuasion of us Persuasiveness to your words and to mine, and even more importantly, in the sense the Spirit can hope can open minds and hearts to receive the good news, just as it's beautifully expressed in the Acts of the Apostles, where the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, so that she could receive the good news that was preached to her. By our own efforts, we could spend a lifetime toiling for Christ and achieve little or nothing. The Holy Spirit can do in one hour what we cannot do in a lifetime. Pray for the Holy Spirit to come with greater power in this place, in this church, in this city, in your heart and in mine. We cannot be true to the gospel. We cannot fulfill Christ's commission to be sent with his good news without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we come back one more time to this great commission. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Where are you being sent to? Where is Jesus sending you? Is he sending you back home to an unbelieving parent, an unbelieving spouse, an unbelieving child, unbelieving siblings? Is he sending you back to school, college, university, to your group, to your teacher, uh, to, your, to your, your lecturer? Is he sending you back to work? Is he sending you far afield? I don't know, but Christians are sent near and far to be sent as Jesus was sent, in obedience to God's word and in the power of His spirit. And to help us, he gives us His presence, his peace, his evidence. His message and his spirit. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, risen Lord, that we not we don't simply have a fact of your resurrection, but we have a living Saviour who we can trust and know. We have a Holy Spirit spread abroad in our hearts. We have a community of faith in this church and in the church. We have so many blessings and benefits. From now on, may we love you and serve you and proclaim you with greater power and effectiveness as you work in us and through us in this needy world. Amen.